Father, we uh, thank you for Sunday mornings and we thank you for the opportunity each week to um, put life, many of the other priorities and activities on hold so we can join together worshiping you, loving on one another, encouraging one another, studying your truth. And I just pray that this morning as we do that, you would teach us your word, that you would produce fruit in our lives from it, that you would grow us in our love for you, our love for one another, just showing us how we are to serve you with our lives, both individually and corporately as the church. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Peter. We are in First Peter, continuing our study this morning. And First Peter, we looking at the first nine verses, Peter has introduced this letter by really trying to express the inexpressible. And that is the greatness of our salvation. Words can only do so much. Words can only get us so far when we talk about the greatness of God and the greatness of this salvation that we have as his people. A few things Peter's taught us so far. First, he's taught us that he is writing to the elect, those who have been chosen by God to become his children, those who have been called by God to be part of his kingdom, to be the inheritors of salvation. Peter taught us that this election is according to the foreknowledge of God. That in eternity past, God had this plan in mind. And God knew those that he would call to be his. Consider that. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a part of the body of Christ, there has not been a moment in which you were not in God's mind, part of God's plan. That your election, your calling, is according to the foreknowledge of God. It exists even outside of time. When time itself didn't exist, God had you in His plan. Your election and your calling in His plan. Is that a remarkable thing or what? Our minds really can't get around it. It's beyond what we can really understand, which is why I say Peter is really, and even the Word of God as a whole, is really expressing to us the inexpressible. It's it gets us very far in understanding the greatness of God in our salvation, but our minds are only capable of so much. We will spend eternity when time no longer exists continuing to grow in our love and in our appreciation of what Peter is teaching us here. He's writing to those, the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, who live currently as foreigners in this world because their citizenship, their permanent citizenship, is in God's kingdom. And that truth applies to us as well. Uh, We live in this world. We are citizens of the United States. We live in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But we're always a little bit awkward, aren't we? It, It never feels just right. Even when things are good, 
It never feels just right because we long for our eternal home, our eternal kingdom. We are foreigners in this world. For that reason, the last thing I'd want to point out and remind us of what Peter has taught us so far in verses 1 through 9 is that we've been redeemed from this passing world to an imperishable inheritance, an eternal kingdom. Again, Peter is expressing to us the greatness of our salvation. And in verses 10 to 12, what we're going to look at this morning, he's going to express that further. He's going to take us deeper into that. Now, in verse 13, we're going to really shift gears and start to talk about the implications of all this. Uh, All this greatness that we've seen in verses 1 through 9 and that we'll learn more about this morning in verses 10 to 12, this all has very real implications for your life. Your life is to be different. Your life is to be changed. And we're going to get into that next week when we get into verse 13. But this morning in verses 10 to 12, he's going to talk about the greatness of this salvation, but from the perspective of prophets and angels, the Old Testament prophets and angels, that the greatness of this salvation is a greatness that fascinated the prophets and and fascinates angels. Fascinated the Old Testament prophets and fascinates angels. So let's read verses 10 to 12, talking about this salvation, the salvation we've talked about in verses 1 to 9. Peter picks up in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We're going to look at three different parts here. We're going to break this into three different parts. Part one, what the prophets knew. Part one, what the prophets knew. Part two, what the prophets did not know. And then part three, the fascination of angels. Let's start by giving ourselves a few things that we can see from the Old Testament that the prophets knew. Peter himself reminds us when the prophets write, were they coming up with their own ideas? Were the prophets the source of the information that they were providing? No, it was God. Peter reminds us that the Old Testament prophets, they didn't write from their own imagination, but it was the Spirit of God inside of them. Peter even says here, it was the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ is the same thing. Christ Himself being God. The Holy Spirit proceeding from Christ. The 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture 
is God-breathed. This includes the Old Testament. So when we go to the Old Testament and we read what we're reading from the prophets, it is the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit's words speaking to us. For that reason, one of the things that the prophets knew was that God is redeeming a people for himself. Tom Pennington at Countryside I don't know if it started, if this is his saying or you got it from somewhere else, but he always tells us that the entirety of the Bible, we always do themes of the book of the Bible, right? Like first Peter's theme is Christian response to suffering. We always do themes for each book of the Bible, but the theme for the Bible as a whole is God is redeeming a people for himself to his glory. God is redeeming a people for himself to his glory. The prophets knew this. The Old Testament points to this. God is redeeming a people for himself. That is, in verses 1 through 9, what Peter has been talking about is this great salvation. But this great salvation that Peter is so focused on is not new. It's not a novel plan. It's not something that just 2,000 years ago God decided to come up with an implement. As Peter's already told us, this is God's foreordained plan. This plan of God existed before time. This plan of redemption existed before time. So it shouldn't surprise us that when God's prophets begin to speak and to speak from the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit inspiring them and moving them to write, it shouldn't surprise us that the Old Testament prophets, taken as a whole, also speak to us of this plan of redemption. It's been the centerpiece, the core, of God's Word to man from the very beginning. You don't have to turn to these passages, because I'm going to do it as quickly as I can and just read from them, but y'all make me nervous, and so trying to find Bible verses with a bunch of people staring at you is uh, very difficult, So, uh, but I'll try. Pointing us to this redemptive work being a part of God's eternal plan, you can go back to the garden. You can go back to the moment that mankind fell into sin. When mankind fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, God didn't have to go into panic mode. God didn't go into plan B. God didn't say, okay, Eve, Adam, Adam, Eve, you've, you've sinned. I'll be back at some point to see if I can come up with a plan to fix this. No. Immediately, the response we see in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to Eve says, I will put, or actually God speaking to um Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, some interesting things about this. How many children, male children, did Eve have? Multiple, right? Yet, when God says this about Eve's seed, Eve's descendants, The Hebrew here is in a masculine singular. God singling out one descendant 
a descendant from Eve, a special one that would crush the head of Satan. Sure, Satan's going to do a lot of damage on this earth. Satan's going to do a lot of challenging things to God's people and God's kingdom. Christ will die on the cross. Christ will be bruised on the heel. But the fatal blow will come from the singular masculine seed of Eve that will crush the head of Satan. Just so you know that this does ultimately lead us to Christ, the Messiah, that as Moses is writing Genesis 3, he is prophesying about the Messiah to come that would defeat Satan. Just so you know that, Luke in chapter 3 is, Luke is tracing the genealogy of Christ, traces it back to Eve. Adam and Eve here in Genesis chapter 3. Galatians 3.16, Paul, which Galatians is really a a great book if you want to know how does the Old Testament and the law relate to this great salvation. Galatians 3.16, Paul here writes, now the promises, these salvation promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And does not say into seeds, not talking to his earth about his many earthly children or his numerous earthly, earthly children, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Job 19. Job is such an interesting book. Because we don't know exactly when it was written. We do know pretty confidently that it was very ancient and that Job lived before much of what we now have as Scripture was written or given. But it's interesting when you hear Job talked about, I've cherished God's Word more than my daily food. It's interesting because we don't exactly know what all Job had as God's Word. And what all we he knew. But I tell you what he did know. He knew that as a child of God, he was being redeemed to God. Job 19, 25 and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. We don't know exactly what Job knew, but that tells us a lot about what he did know, that he was being redeemed for God. Psalm 130. It's really hard to pick and choose what all to read from Psalm 130, so I'll just read it all. Because it is the people of God praising God, rejoicing in God for the greatness of their salvation. Psalm 130, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord 
there's loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The people of God in the Old Testament worshipped him and rejoiced in his redemption. The Old Testament prophets knew that the central work of God was redeeming a people for himself. Isaiah 35, looking at the end of verse 9 on into 10, the, talking about Zion's happy future. The redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The Old Testament was all about salvation. It was all about redemption. Salvation, redemption, God's work is a redeeming God, redeeming a people for himself. That's not something that started with Christ on earth in his death and resurrection. That Christ's death and resurrection, his earthly ministry, that's the pinnacle of God's saving work. But this is, as Peter has already told us in verses 1 through 9, and now he's supporting his argument, proving his argument by pointing us back to the Old Testament prophets. This has always been God's plan. When the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter verse 10, as he puts it, or I'm sorry, verse 11, the message of the prophets and the Holy Spirit from the very beginning has been God's redemption. They knew that God is redeeming a people for himself. The second thing they knew in addition to that, salvation has always, from day one, been by grace through faith. By grace through faith. That will come as a surprise to many people. Many people will be shocked by that because they'll say, wait a second, what about the law? What about the, um, the, the commandments and the covenants? Salvation, we just read Psalm 130. They recognize if God should count iniquities, who can stand? The implied response there is absolutely nobody. Galatians 3.24, like I mentioned, Galatians is a very important book to go read if you want to understand how the Old Testament law interacts with salvation by grace, but I'll just give you a part of it. Galatians 3.24 Paul, speaking to the purpose of the law, says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law simply shows us the impossibility of meeting God's standard of righteousness as sinful people. The law shows us Leviticus 19.2 where, where God commands his people to be holy as he is holy, the law shows us the impossibility of that. I'll go back to Psalm 130 and just pull a few verses here to show us that even in the Old Testament, God's people knew 
that if they were to be saved, if they were to be redeemed, it had to be by grace through faith. Psalm 130, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Hope in the Lord, Israel, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption, and he will redeem iniquity or Israel from all his iniquities. Paul makes this point in Romans. How was Abraham justified? Was it by his own righteousness? Was it by his obedience to the law? Was it by Abraham simply being so good? No. Genesis 15.6 Abraham believed God. And by that faith, he was justified. By that faith, he was justified. Habakkuk 2.4, again, another verse that Paul leans on. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous believe in God. I misquoted that, so I better go read it because you don't want to misquote that. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Even in the Old Testament, even with the law, the message of the prophets was clear. Salvation, this work of redemption that was the focus of everything they talked about, was going to come by grace through faith. And despite the recurring sins of God's people in the Old Testament, the corresponding recurring call from God is for his people to repent, to forsake their sin, return to God, and by his grace, he will abundantly pardon. Is that familiar to us? It's the gospel. It's the same gospel message that we respond to, that we are sinners, yet if we will repent of our sin and turn to Christ in faith, we will be forgiven. Isaiah 55, 7. I believe that was a small group memory verse, right? Recently? Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Is that not the gospel? It's the same message that John the Baptist preached. It's the same message that Christ preached. It's the same message that the apostles preached. It's the same message that we preach today and respond to today. That we are sinners, but yet if we will turn from our sin to God in faith, He will abundantly pardon. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about. When we go back to 1 Peter and we look at verses 1-12, through the point of verses 1 through 9 is that this is a great salvation. You have been called, elected by the foreknowledge of God to this inexpressibly great salvation, yet this is not just something new that God has come up with. The prophets, that's where we get to verses 10 to 12, the prophets, the Old Testament has, from the very beginning, been pointing us to this redemptive work of God. So two things so far the prophets knew. God is redeeming a people for himself, 
Second, a salvation by grace through faith. And again, the prophets didn't know this because they were so smart or because they came up with it. But as verse 11 in 1 Peter 1 tells us, this was the Spirit of Christ speaking through them. The third thing that the Old Testament assures us that they knew was that this redemptive work by grace through faith was going to be accomplished through a person, a God-man, Jesus Christ, 100% God, yet 100% human. Going back to Genesis 3.15, where Luke 3 also affirms Christ is the seed of Eve. Uh, Christ is the Son of Man. Job spoke of his Redeemer as a person. Going back to what we read, Job 19, Job said, I know that in my flesh I will see my Redeemer. Salvation was to be accomplished according to the Old Testament through a person. And we know that person is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's a remarkable verse. Because there we have in one single verse written hundreds of years before Christ was on this earth, one verse containing both the deity and the humanity in fullness of in Christ. Christ, 100% man, born of a virgin, a son, a human baby, yet Emmanuel, God with us. Speaking of this son, this, this divine baby, Isaiah 9-6 goes on to say, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Again, a baby, a child born that is fully man, yet at the same time, fully God. Now, First Peter, he tells us these things were written for us, for us today, for, for New Testament believers, so that we would know that this is not some weird novel idea, but this has been God's plan foretold from the very beginning. This is what the prophets told us because it, it is a rather remarkable thing to step back and say this child is fully human, yet fully God. Yet Peter's point is, hey, don't be surprised by that because that is what the prophets said would happen. You go to Genesis 3.15. That is exactly what God said in the garden would happen. Salvation. we got three things now. What the prophets knew. One, God is redeeming a people for Himself. Two, salvation by grace through faith. And three, a third or a, a person. Salvation, this redemptive work, would be done through a person. Fourth, the fourth thing that they knew, this redemption would be accomplished through suffering. That this God-man, 
Jesus Christ would suffer. Isaiah, Isaiah 53. You could read really this whole passage. You could read this whole passage, but I'm just going to pick out a few verses. It's really hard when you pull these up to, to know where do I cut it off because you just want to read it all. It's all so good. But Isaiah 53, talking about how this God-man would redeem us, how our sins would be forgiven, how this redemption would be accomplished through him. He says, this God-man was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has called caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Leviticus 17.11 says, it is by the blood, it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. Hebrews Dusty will get us there at some point where Hebrews talks about without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In fact, what we're going to gather through Hebrews, Hebrews, the theme being the superiority of Christ, is that what we're going to gather as we move through Hebrews, R.C. Sproul always said that if he could was only allowed to read one book of the Bible every day the rest of his life. It would be the book of Hebrews because it's essentially the entirety of God's Word condensed into 13 chapters, one letter. And it's all about how the Old Testament was pointing us to this superior, redemptive work of Christ. It, Hebrews are, is really a fleshing out of what Peter is teaching us in First Peter chapter 1, 10 to 13 or 10 to 12. That this, the prophets, what they were pointing us to was the superior work of Christ's redemptive act. Hebrews is really 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 to 12 spread out over 13 chapters. The prophets knew four things now. I'm going to have to hurry up. God is redeeming a people for himself. Salvation by grace through faith. Third, through a person. And fourth, through suffering. And I'm going to start to talk faster. I'm on number five, right? Fifth, for God's glory. Like Tom Pennington always says, the Bible's about God redeeming a people for himself for his own glory. The purpose of your life is for God's glory. Now, is there benefit to you? Absolutely. You get to be a part of God's kingdom, of God's family. You get to be a child of God and, 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 um, and have a relationship with Him as a loving, perfectly holy Father. But ultimately, it is about God's glory. In verse 11, 
The prophets, they, they made careful searches and inquiries into the salvation, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Just so you know, it's always been about God's glory. I'll give you a few references. Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 39, talking, he's recapping. This is before he dies. Moses is just recapping the redemptive work that he's seen in the people of Israel. And he says, see now, this is God talking. He's done this so that people will see that he is God. He is Yahweh. He is Lord. And there is no God besides him. Isaiah 33:17 says, the redeemed of God, the people of God will see the king in his beauty. The Lord is the king. Talking about our salvation as citizens of God's kingdom, Jeremiah 31, 12, they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord. We get to just see the goodness of the Lord in our salvation. Ezekiel 37, I'm going to read for you verses 27 and 28 here. Talking about how we rejoice and recognize the greatness of God in our salvation. Says, my dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And this redemptive work, as great as it is on our for us on our behalf and our salvation and our eternity with God, ultimately what it displays at even a higher level is the glory, the beauty, the greatness of God. So the prophets, what did they know? They knew that God is redeeming a people for himself. Second, that it was a salvation, a a redemption by grace through faith. Third, it was a redemption accomplished through a person, Jesus Christ. Fourth, it was going to be through his suffering. Fifth, it was about his glory. Now, as much as the prophets knew, and as much as the Holy Spirit revealed to them and spoke through them, they did not know everything. They did not know everything. In fact, verse 10 and 11 says that they made careful searches and inquiries. They were obsessed with this. Who is this person that God is going to redeem us through? When is this going to happen? Don't we always wonder when? I think there's a lot of correlations we'll talk about here that we can relate to in how the Old Testament prophets saw this coming Redeemer in us in the end times. We know a lot, right? Like, we know a lot about what's going to happen when this world is done. That Christ is going to return. That Christ is going to establish his kingdom on this earth. That Christ is going to tear down this world system. That this world will be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth will be created that we'll get to dwell on forever. We know a lot that we can be 100% confident in. But do we know when? 
Yet we're always wondering when, right? Like that's like the thing. Everybody's always wondering. And even to some of the details of how it will happen at the end, there are great Christian men and women who disagree on some of the details. None of them disagree on those core things I just told you. They're all in full agreement there, but we only know so much. We can only know what God has chosen to reveal to us. And we can be confident that he has chosen to reveal to us everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to serve out his purposes. But he doesn't tell us everything. So what are some of the things that the prophets did not know? First of all, they didn't know the precise historical person through which this salvation would be accomplished. Isaiah 7.14, they knew that he would be born of a virgin, Micah 5.2. They knew that he was going to come from Bethlehem, but they didn't know exactly who this person would be, who this virgin would be. They didn't know exactly when this would happen. Um, Mary herself, think, put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. They're going about their life, you know, getting ready to get married. Building out their, like they're at Target, shooting their registry gun, getting things ready to roll. And then Gabriel shows up and says, guess what? You are going to have a baby given to you by the Holy Spirit. What? The prophets did not know exactly when this would take place. And they didn't know exactly through whom this would take place. And the other thing about God that adds to this is God very regularly does things differently than we as people would do them. That's just normal. That's why every human religion has a system of salvation by law, legalism, directly opposed to the gospel of God. And no human would have ever made up the gospel because God just does things so differently than we would do them. And he does that in our lives but he also did it through the work of Christ. They, The Old Testament prophets, they knew that this Messiah, this Christ was going to come and establish his kingdom and overthrow the kingdoms of this world. And 100%, that is going to happen just as the prophets foretold. But did Christ do it exactly the way that they all anticipated? No. They expected Christ to show up and do it now. (laughs) Do it like, hey, Christ is here. Overthrow the Romans and let's establish the kingdom of God here and now, first century Palestine. And God didn't do it that way. It even confused John the Baptist. We've been studying this with the youth. We've been studying Matthew 11 the past few nights um, or two weeks. And, and, And you think of John the Baptist, he... When when Jesus shows up on the scene, John recognizes very much about who Jesus is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one that I am not worthy to untie his shoes. Quit following me. Follow him. And when Jesus comes to be baptized, John says, no, I should be baptized by you. Yet what happens in Matthew 11? John sends some of his disciples, says, Jesus... Are you the Messiah? Like, are, 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 are you him? Or should we wait for another one? Cause John, he's sitting in jail. Like, you gotta think, John's sitting in jail. He's like, I didn't expect this to be my situation when the Messiah showed up. I thought this guy was gonna come, overturn the earthly authorities, and establish his kingdom. 
And the answer is yes, John. He's going to, but in his time. In his time. Not, not at this time. And in fact, Jesus, his response to John is exactly applicable to what we're seeing in First Peter. How did Jesus respond to the disciples of John the Baptist? He just quoted the Old Testament. Jesus said, here's a bunch of passages from Isaiah. Go repeat these to John and tell them that these are being fulfilled now. Jesus in the temple. Remember when he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and read it, closed it up and said, today these are being fulfilled in your presence. It's directly applicable to what Peter's telling us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. That these Old Testament prophets, he says in verse 12, they were not serving themselves, but you today in the church, the Old Testament is serving you today in the church by showing us that Jesus Christ absolutely is the one through whom redemption would come. Again, I think it's very much for us like the end times. We know, we know everything we need to know, but we don't know the specifics. The Old Testament prophets didn't know the specifics. They didn't know the person. They didn't know the time. But Jesus very clearly is the one through whom the redemption that they pointed to is accomplished. Verse 12 again. It was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then last, things that into angels, things into which angels long to look. So first, what the prophets knew. Second, what they didn't know. They didn't know exactly the time or the place. But the third part here, the fascination of angels. You think about angels, they've got access to a little bit different realm and world than we do, right? Like you think their existence day to day is probably a lot different from us. Yet what fascinates them? I mean, they've got access to like the spiritual realm in ways we don't. They've got what fascinates them though? God's redeeming of a people for himself. This is their fascination. This gospel that you get to partake in as followers of Christ, verse 12 tells us, these are things into which angels long to look. This is their fascination. Angels rejoice over our redemption. They don't even get to partake in it. Angels don't get to partake in it. Angels can't be redeemed. Angels aren't inheritors of God's kingdom in the way we are. Angels don't get to be children of God. Yet even as much as they are removed in the sense that this great salvation doesn't apply to them, they're absolutely fascinated by it. They rejoice over our redemption. They see the way that God is redeeming a people for himself. They weren't created in God's image. You were. You were created in God's image. And 
They see the greatness of what God is doing for you and they glorify God over it constantly and they will for eternity. It shows me that we really don't understand the greatness of our salvation. The angels see something that we just can't see. Like, how else could they be eternally rejoicing and glorifying God over something that they don't get to even partake in? We alone are the objects of God's redemption. But if the angels are so fascinated by it, and if the angels rejoice so much over it and just glorify God so much over what you get to partake in, how much more should you be rejoicing over the work of God in your own life and also for the church? Glorifying God for His work in your own life and also in the church. I want us to apply these things in three different ways. First thing I want us to focus on, recognizing God's eternal redemptive purpose. Recognize God's eternal redemptive purpose. That you think about the greats. We talked about the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, had a debate on who would go on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. I think in the youth group Wednesday night, we settled on Moses, David, uh, Elijah, and Abraham. Thank you. Yeah, we settled on those four. As great as those men were and all they were involved with, the single greatest obsession of the Old Testament prophets was this redemptive work of God. This eternal redemptive work of God. This should change the way we look at life. Because life, we get distracted by so many little things by so many things that if we could truly step back and see God's eternal perspective, think about how foolish it would seem. Think about it. We're like Martha, right? When like, you know, Jesus is there and Mary's listening to Jesus, but Martha, she's like worried about the dirty dishes. She's worried about the dust on the counter. And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha. You are worried about such insignificant things in the light, in light of the fact that the Messiah is sitting here in your house. Like, quit dusting the television. Jesus is here. But that's us too. Like, this, we've got to struggle every day to reorient our thoughts and our purposes and our view of life from this eternal, redemptive perspective of God so that the, the things that we get so hung up on, uh, on every day, the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Recognize the greatness of God's eternal redemptive purpose and that you get to be just front and center for all of it. Like, do you know, you think about, um, like Job, saying that I cherish God's word more than my daily food. When David just talks about Psalm 1, uh, just meditating on God's word day and night. Do you realize how much more of God's word you have than those men had when they said that? Like they, the way we're looking at the end times through kind of a veil, that's how they looked at 
the work of Christ. Yet now we get to look back at the work of Christ and just the clarity that the fullness of God's word gives us. We are in such a fortunate position. Second thing to recognize, recognize God's eternal redemptive purpose. Second, um, recognize the greatness of getting to participate in that. I kind of already said that. Recognize the great, like, let that rejoicing, if the angels long to look into this, and if the angels rejoice over the redemption of God's people and glorify God for his redemptive work, so should you, even more so. You're getting to participate. Third, recognize the greatness of God's word. This should cause you to give God's word in the Old Testament top priority in your life. Don't neglect the Old Testament. All of Scripture is God-breathed. Sometimes we fail as Christians living today to give the Old Testament its proper place in our life. When Peter's telling us here that these things, hey, they weren't Isaiah. He says they weren't serving themselves. Isaiah didn't write Isaiah for himself. Isaiah was written for the church. Isaiah was written for you. So that when someone says you're crazy to think that some baby could be born fully God and fully human, you could think, well, that's exactly how Isaiah said it would happen four to five hundred years before it happened. <laughs> um, it, the, the recognize just the greatness of God's word and look at the example of Jesus and the apostles in first Peter chapter one, verse 12. Peter says, these things, this redemption that has now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you, Jesus and, and the apostles, read through here and see how they relied on the Old Testament. Their arguments were built upon God's word from the Old Testament over and over again. Jesus himself, people would often ask him questions, and his direct response was the Old Testament. Give the Old Testament a place in your own life that Jesus and the apostles gave it. Follow their example because the entirety of this book from cover to cover is about God redeeming a people for himself, for his glory. And if you are a follower of Christ, that's you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift that is our redemption the gift that is our salvation, being allowed to be your children, and just the grace that is that goes into that. And we just thank you so much for your word, that it points clearly to your work, and that it just shows your glory. And I just pray that those realities would be the lenses through which we look at life, so that we see things in their proper perspective, so that we can live life more to your glory and more for your purposes. And as we go to the worship service this morning, I just pray that we would sing fully with our hearts and our minds completely engaged and listen to your word with the intent of responding in obedience. And I, again, pray, Spirit, just produce fruit in our lives from that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.